Alright, Genesis 14. You go ahead and turn there. As most of you know, we've been coming chapter by chapter, verse by verse, coming through Genesis. We're at chapter 14 today. Does everybody have a study guide that says Genesis 14 at the, at the top there? If you don't have one, maybe you can throw a hand up. We can get something back to those that don't have them right here. Of God to help you as we walk through this passage together. You know, walking through God's Word together is not just an intellectual exercise, God uses His Word to speak to His people. To convict us, to encourage us, to move us, give us direction, does all those things. And so let's pray now and ask Him to do that. Let's ask Him that He would help us. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Word. God, we look to Your Word as a light. As a lamp to our feet, Lord. We look to your word. As this beautiful revelation, God, would you reveal to us who you are, God? Lord, we look to your word to be corrected and rebuked and changed. We look to your word to see Christ. And so please help us, Lord, this morning. Come. Dwell with us, Lord. Let your presence be with us. Let us hear from you in your word. Holy Spirit, speak this morning through these pages of Scripture. God, we need your help in this time. Thank you, Lord, for so freely and graciously giving us help, Lord. You said that if you didn't spare your own son, but you delivered him up for us all, how how you not also freely in Christ give us all things? So God, we trust you to answer our prayers this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I want us to start off on this, uh, in this passage of Scripture. We're just walking through the plain sense of what's in Genesis 14. So essentially, I just want to read, read this Scripture. We're going to read it together. And along the way, I'm just going to make some explanatory comments just as we go, okay? So we're going to read a little bit, make a comment, read a verse, make a comment. And this is how we're going to read through this passage of Scripture. And the idea is that we walk away and we have the plain sense of what's here. We understand the, the flow of thought of what's in Genesis chapter 14. And just as a few bullet points is there on your study guide, you really can break this up into three sections. Genesis 14, verse 1 through 12, we're going to see this war an outbreak of war in Canaan, and, and one of the, the results of that war is Lot, Abraham's nephew, is taken captive. And you get down to verse 13 through 16, we're going to see Abraham go to war to rescue his nephew, Lot. And then verse 17 through 24, we're going to see the response of two kings as Abraham comes back from victory in this war. So let's start. 
Chapter 14, verse 1 through 12. So it's a war in Canaan with a focus on Lot being taken captive. Now, I want you to remember where we left Abram and Lot off in the book of Genesis. We left them off in Genesis 13. And we got them both in the land of Canaan. Lot has decided to go into this area where Sodom is. And Abraham is a good, good, good distance away from him further to the west. So look at chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. In the days of Am, Amraphel, uh, I want you to count these kings. It's going to help you if you count these kings. You can even throw a hand up if you like. Count these kings, okay? In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam. By the way, these are the official pronouncements of these words. <laughs> if you thought it was supposed to be pronounced differently, just repent. Okay? It's three kings. And title, king of going. So how many kings is it? Four. Four kings. Now these kings made war with, alright, count these. They made war with Bera, king of Sodom. That's the area where Lot is now. Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Shinab, king of Adma. Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So here we have four kings making war on these five kings. Now these are all kings from the Canaanite, the, uh, the area of Canaan and the surrounding area. This is the place, uh, these peoples that are under that curse of Canaan that we read about back in Genesis chapter 9. These are peoples that God later on will promise the people of Israel that he's going to uproot them and destroy these peoples because of their wickedness. Look at verse 3. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidon. That is the salt sea. So four kings versus five kings joined together in battle. Now, now what's going to happen next is we're going to get a little bit of a background for why these confederation of kings, these coalition of kings, why are they fighting? Look at verse 4. Twelve years they had served... Keterleomer. Now that man seems to be the leader of that confederation of four kings. Keterleomer. For 12 years they served him. But in the 13th year they rebelled. So these five kings had been paying tribute to Keterleomer. And these four kings for, for a long, uh, long period of time. And then for some reason they decided to break away from the rule of Keterleomer. And that federation of four kings. Verse 5 and 6. In the 14th year of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him. <clears throat> excuse me. In the 14th year of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him. Came and defeated the Rephium and Ashtoreth Karnaim. The Zuzum and Ham. The Emim and Shabbat Kariathaim and the Horites in the hill country of Seir. As far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. So here's what we're seeing. We're seeing this confederation of four kings led out by Keterleomer. And they're going on a war path. And they're violently destroying every people group in their path. Until they get to this coalition of five kings that have rebelled. This is a pretty intense war path that they're on. 
Imagine that they go into this people group led out by these people, destroy them, take away the loot, destroy this people, take away the loot all the way around. And they're going to loot back around to get to these five kings. But their war passed not over. Verse 7. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. So what we're seeing here, this is like a, it's like a preview to larger empires that will come and, and at later dates that will uh, stretch out their rule all across all across the world, all across the land. Uh, Ketoleomer is like a preview of, of uh, like an Alexander the Great, except for on a smaller scale. Verse 8 and 9, they finally meet those five kings. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bala, that is Zoar, that's five kings, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidon with Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. So the four kings have made it. They've wreaked havoc and destruction all across the land. And now they've made it to these five kings. So would this, will this coalition of five kings be able to uh, withstand the attack and the defeat that these four kings have brought to so many others? Verse 10. Now the valley of Sidon was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the answer is no. These four kings, they continue their expansion. They dominate the five kings just as easy as the rest. And they extend, they extend their territory on out, even to these five kings. If you're wondering right here, it says a bitumen pit. If you wonder what that is, it's like a natural tar pit or a natural uh, asphalt pit. If you want a specific definition, it says it is a result of a type of petroleum seep where subterranean bitumen leaks to the surface, creating a large area of natural asphalt. So hope that helps you. Now, we still see those kind of things today around the Dead Sea, actually. If you go to the Dead Sea, which is actually the place where these five kings reside, you still see stuff like these asphalt, these asphalt pits. Verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So they have defeated. They've wreaked havoc all across the land, destroying as they go. They made it to the five kings of rebel, and they destroyed them as well. Led out by Kederleomer. Verse 12. They also took Lot. The son of Abram's brother. Who was dwelling in Sodom. So now we start to see where these events. These events that go across the whole region. How they begin to intersect with Abram's life. As his nephew Lot is taken captive. Now remember the reason that, that, that Lot is in Sodom. If you go back to Genesis 13. That he, Abram gives uh, Lot the choice to go where he wants. And he chooses in a, a kind of a worldly decision. Just what seems right to him. He chooses to go to this area of Sodom. It's, it's, it's make, it makes it clear in chapter 13 that this is a bad decision. Because those people in Sodom are very wicked. Great sinners 
In the sight of God is what it says in chapter 13, verse 13. So again, verse 12, they took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. So there it is. If you remember, Lot had chosen this. He, he chose what was right in his own eyes, and, and he did it for the sake of riches, for the sake of his own prosperity. And now he and his family are enslaved. Everything's stripped away, and he's enslaved to these people. I think that's a quick reminder to us of that proverb that says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. There are ways that can seem so right to us, and he chose a way that seems so right, but it came to a bitter end. I think one lesson there is not to do just what seems right to us. There's another proverb that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Lot got to this place based off of his own understanding, and now he's enslaved with his family and everything is stripped from him. All right, go with me to the next section here. Verse 13 through 16. So what we're going to see now is Abram's going to go to war to rescue Lot. This is amazing stuff. This is like, like uh, Braveheart type stuff. Okay? Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eskol and, and of Aner. These were allies... Of Abram. So now you got Abram and his allies. These three men are mentioned here as his allies. And now they know what has happened to this man Lot. Now Abram's up to this point. He stayed out of the battle. He stayed out of the war. But now he hears that his nephew. Has been taken captive. And he's about to enter in. To this battle. Enter, enter into the scene here. Now right here Abram. is called the Hebrews. First time we had this word. Hebrew in our Bible. This word Hebrew, it means one who is from beyond. One who is from beyond. And for the rest of the Bible, you're going to see Abraham and his descendants and the people of Israel called Hebrews. So Abram's about to enter the battle. Verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, talking about Lot, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit as far as is Dan. Now you think about this. That's, that's about a 120 mile journey. No cars. No, no planes. No trains. And he takes a 120 mile journey. And he's going on a war path. To rescue his nephew Lot. So Abram, his men, his allies. They're on a, a mission. To deliver Lot. But can they deliver him. From these mighty kings. This coalition of four kings. This destroyed the whole region. Can he deliver him? Verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night. So here he is. He's made it the 120 mile journey. He begins to divide his forces at night. He's going to attack them. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them. And pursued them to Hobah north of Damascus. So in a very Gideon-like fashion, Abram routes his enemies and delivers his nephew Lot. This is an amazing victory. An amazing victory right here. Verse 16. Then he brought back all the possessions. And also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. 
So you imagine this victory. How must this have felt as he hits that journey back home? Maybe like David, he just slew Goliath. Maybe he feels like that. Like a conquering king. How does Abram feel? This is the moment of rejoicing and joy. Celebration that the war has been won. And the mission has been accomplished. It's a time of rejoicing. So you imagine Abram and his men headed back. Now go to that next section. Verse 17 through 24. What we're going to see here is the response of two kings. So Abram's journeying back home. He's still illuminated with this, this uh, uh, happiness of, of victory that he's just won. A battle that he's just won. And two kings meet him along the way. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Ketaleomer and the kings who were with him. Which, by the way, if you go read about this account in Hebrews 7... The writer of the Hebrews calls that little event Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. So Abraham's returning from the slaughter of the kings. After his return from the defeat of Ketaleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, that's one king, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's the second king, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. So two, two kings are put forward. You got the king of Sodom is put forward. We're familiar with him. He was one of those coalition of five kings that's been defeated. But then like a sudden interruption, here comes this other king. King of Salem, Melchizedek. Who is this man? Where does he come from? And so like a glorious interruption, Melchizedek enters into the scene here. Now we'll pick back up. We'll pick up back up with the king of Sodom in just a moment. But keep going about Melchizedek, verse 19. And he, talk about Melchizedek, king of Salem, who brought out bread and wine, priest of the Most High God. He blesses him. He blesses Abram and said, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And some glorious stuff there. Abram just won the victory. Won the battle. And here comes this Melchizedek. It says God is the one that's delivered your enemies into your hand. This is very mysterious. You know, where does this guy come from? Uh, where does he go? You don't hear much about him after this. It's just like this, this guy with all this prominence. All of a sudden flashes forth onto the scene. Uh, Abram ties to this man. Where does he come from? How does he know the God most high? It's a very mysterious man. And we'll come back to him in a minute. Verse 21 takes us back to the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom said to Abram. Give me the persons. But take the goods for yourself. Now I want you to think about those words. Give me the persons, he says. But all the spoils of war, take them for yourself, Abram. Take the goods for yourself. Now these words are, are words of testing. Another testing of Abram's faith. Oh, this time it's not a test of famine, but a test, a test of prosperity, a test of success. Now if that sounds weird to anyone here, a test of, of prosperity. What's that mean? Listen to these words from Kent Hughes. So often those who have been stellar in adversity are derailed by success. So often those who are 
stellar in adversity are derailed by success. So here you see Abram. He's got a chance to, to by his own flesh, gain the prosperity and the blessing in the land. He could do it by his own flesh rather than trusting in God that said he would do it for him. And if you think about the offer that's being given here, all this prosperity, take all the spoils of war, Abram. This makes sense. It makes sense. You've earned it, Abram. It makes sense that you would take this, this offer from the king of Sodom. It just makes sense. Just do it. But what does he do? Look at verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing. But what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. So you think about that. Abram returns home from victory. He's blessed by his meeting with Melchizedek and he resists the defilement and the test of his faith with the king of Sodom. Here's what I want to do. I want to move in as you look at your study guide there to this Abram's growing faith and then eventually to this mysterious figure called Melchizedek. But before we do that, before we move forward into that, just one thing I want to identify from what we just read, okay? We read a lot of funny sounding names, a lot of specific places. I want you to think about this, this, this question here. Does the Bible sound like a book of moral stories to you, or does it sound like a book of accurate historical record? What does it sound like to you? And here's why I say that, because you read this stuff and it's, it's got specific places in mind, even parentheses where Moses has injected. Hey, this is what we call this place now. This is what it used to be called. This is what we call it now. Specific names are here. Battles that are won. Battles that are lost. Allies that are here. Specific quotations. You have very specific things being given here that aren't necessarily the most entertaining things to read. And so what we see is this is a historical narrative. Now, why am I saying that? Because we've got to stop reading God's word like it's Aesop's fables. It's not just a group of disconnected, moralistic stories. Read this story and know what, know a moral from it. Read this story and know a more, another moral from it. We've got to stop reading God's word that way. If that's what God's word is all about, that means God's word is about us. It's mainly about us. But we know that's not true. God's word is a connected story. It's a historical account that unfolds history to us. And in that unfolding of history, we see who God is and the story of redemption in Christ Jesus. We need to change the way we read God's word. And passages like this that aren't necessarily always fun to the flesh, I guess you'd say, to read with all those funny names. They help us to remember that. Now let's go to Abram's. Abram's growing faith here, okay? So in Genesis, the book of Genesis, starting in chapter 12, we see Abram's faith. We see Abram's faith get tested. We see his faith grow and develop over time as we read through these chapters of the book of Genesis. And so as we see that in Abram's life, here's a question. Are we supposed to look at Abram's faith as an example for us to follow? Are we supposed to look at Abram's faith as an example for for us to follow. And I say absolutely yes. Let me just flash a few reasons that I say that into your ears. First Corinthians 10, 11, It says these things all happened to them as examples. And they were written for our learning. 
Okay, they happened to them as examples and they were written for our learning. We're supposed to learn from their examples. Hebrews 6, verse 12 through 15 specifically mentions Abram and said, This is written that you might imitate him in his faith. Hebrews 11 mentions Abram. Uh, by faith, Abram. By faith, Abram. It, about, about 10 verses there of Abram's faith. In fact, this is the thing that gets put forward about Abram as you read about him through the rest of the, the Bible over and over again. Is he's a man of faith. Galatians 3 9 calls him the man of faith. So yes, we're supposed to look at Abram and his life, Abraham and his life, and see a man of faith and the way he lived it out. And the way he was tested, the way he failed, and God picked him back up. And we're supposed to learn from this man of faith that we might imitate the man of faith. Now the way that we've seen the outworking of his faith up to this point. If you go back to Genesis 12, what do we see? In Genesis 12, we see this man dwelling in a place where, where pagan worship is everywhere. Worshiping the moon God. And God calls him out of that place. He says, Abram, I want you to leave this place and go to a land that I'll show you. He doesn't even tell him where he's going yet. So you just get up and go and I'll tell you when you get there. And he has to move out in faith. And he does that. He goes out in faith. He trusts God. And he lands in this, the land of Canaan. We see at the end of chapter 12, Abram's faith being tested. He gets to the land and a famine hits the land. And in a moment of, of, of little faith, he flees the land and goes to Egypt and God corrects him. God rebukes him in that. In fact, I believe God grows him through that. Because you get to Genesis 13 and we see Abram's faith still being tested. He has a chance to go anywhere he wants in the land and he, and he defers to his nephew that was younger than him, Lot. And so we see him learning to walk in faith throughout Genesis. Now when we get to Genesis 14... The passage we just slowly read through. I want us to see this. That Abram's faith is expressed to us in what he does. And then secondly, what he does not do. His faith is expressed in what he does. And then what he does not do. Let me explain what I mean. Sometimes faith will lead you to do great exploits like Abram. Think about what he did as he hit that 120 mile journey to go to war to deliver Lot. Sometimes great faith will lead you to do great exploits. But also sometimes faith will lead you to not do some things that seem so sensible to the world. It just makes sense to the world. Like Abram. Abram, why didn't you take that money, that spoil? Why didn't you take it from the king of Sodom? Sometimes faith leads you to not do some things that the world thinks it makes sense that you do it. So let's start with that first one. Faith in God will lead you to do great exploits. Faith in God will lead you to do great exploits. Okay, Consider Abraham's great exploit here. Think about how great it was what he did. And this, is, this is a truly great thing. Here he is, minding his own business. The war is going down. And he hears that Lot has been taken captive. Now, he gathers together a comparatively small band of men... And he begins to go to war against these people that have conquered at least 11 people groups already. And he makes war on them. Even some of the people in those groups that, that the, the Confederation of Four Kings that they, that they slaughtered, that they killed. Some in, those, some in those groups were these men of great stature, these giants of the land like the Rephium or the Zuzum that we see there that they defeated. So, so Abram, you're going to take your small 
comparatively small band of men with your allies and go to war with those people? And then we see he actually whooped them. It was a great exploit. Now, what was Abram's motivation for doing this? What was his motivation for this great exploit? And what I want you to see is it was love for Lot. Look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. So what did it? What, what motivated him to go on this great exploit? Love for Lot. He heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, so he's ready to go to war. And that makes his actions even greater, right? That it's not motivated by greed of money. It's not motivated by lust of power. Motivated by love for the one that I want to deliver from the hands of the enemy. It's a great exploit. Now what motivation, excuse me, what, what, what gave Abram the courage that he needed to perform this great exploit? What gave Abram the courage he needed to carry out this great exploit? Faith in God. It's his faith, his faith in God. John Calvin said it like this. It ought to be ascribed to the faith of Abram that with a small band he dared to assail a numerous army elated with victory. So it's his faith in God fed his courage to go on this great exploit out of love for his nephew Lot. So here's the truth. Faith in God. And I mean, I mean genuine faith in God. I'm not talking about sometimes that work and just be, you just write it off. You hear it so much. There's so much in the Bible that you don't think much about it. I'm talking about a genuine reliance upon God. Looking at His Word. Holding to His promises. Sticking to His commands. Because you trust Him. Faith in God. Here's the truth. Faith in God frees us to love other people as Abram did Lot. Faith in God frees us to love others as Abram did Lot. Let me say it like this. What feeds the courage in a man or woman? What feeds the courage that we need to love others with great exploits? What feeds that courage? Faith in God. You look away from yourself to God. Let me show you that in a couple of scriptures. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 32. Hebrews 10, 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So it's saying you guys have, have suffered, you've, had, you've gone through much suffering. And sometimes it's your own suffering. And sometimes the suffering came because you were partnered up with those people that were in prison. And when you identified yourself and you went and loved those people, they identified you with them and therefore you experienced suffering with them. Keep reading. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Think about that. You had compassion on those in prison. You knew if you went to help them that they would plunder your stuff. That you would enter into suffering. But you joyfully entered into your own suffering. Because you wanted to have compassion towards these in prison. 
Since what what fed the courage for them to do this? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great great reward. And so what you see here is faith in God. Because he says, since you know that you have a great reward coming, that it's in God, it's in Christ, there's an eternity coming to you. Since you know that, since you have faith right there, you've been free to go love these people in prison, even though it means the plundering of your goods. Faith in God frees you to love people with great exploits. You can see the same thing in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, the Great Commission there. We're told, go into all the world, go make disciples of all the nations... All the nations, that's a great exploit. You imagine that, thinking about a people group that has no gospel. And you want to pick up your life and move from your home and go take the gospel to that land when it's even at the risk of your own life. That's a great exploit. But what can feed your courage to love people like that? Keep reading. He says, surely I'll be with you always, even to the ends of the age. His faith in God and his word. He says, surely I'll be with you always. Feed your courage to go to the nations. And these are just two examples of this idea. That just like Abram, faith fed his courage to love Lot with great, with great exploits. Now, what about us? I want us to think about us for a minute on that. How do we, how do we measure up to Abram? Daniel chapter eleven, verse thirty-two. It says, "The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits." The people who know their God shall be strong. And carry out great exploits. Now, if you were in Abram's shoes, right? You're in Abram's shoes, and you heard that Lot, your, your nephew, has been taken captive. Would you have the love in your soul to go after him? Would you? Would you have the faith in God to feed the curse to go after him? Would you have that? And I think it's easy to say that you would, if you if you were in Abram's shoes, right? It's easy to say that. But what about those people that are around you right now that are just like Lot? What about people that are around you right now that are just like Lot? Think about it. Lot was defeated. He was enslaved. He was captive by the enemy. And he was headed for destruction. And how does God's word speak about lost people that are all around you? This is what the Bible says. That, you're, that they are defeated. They are enslaved to sin like Lot. They are taken captive by the enemy. And they are headed for destruction in hell. And I want you to make that comparison. It's easy to put ourselves in Abram's shoes and say, yeah, I'd go after Lot. Yeah, I would trust in my God. But what about those people around you right now that spiritually speaking are like him? Defeated, taken captive and headed for destruction and hell. There are lost people all around us. Lost people in nations where they do not have the gospel. What keeps us from rising up in courage and taking great exploits to get them the gospel? What stops us in that? And at least one answer, and probably the most basic, is a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith. How can you feed that faith? How can you feed it? You look away from yourself. You look at God's word. You see who this God is. And it feeds your faith to go after this. You remember the promises. Like in Matthew 28, I'll be with you always, even to the ends of the age, as you go make disciples. You remember Acts 1-8, that that you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You remember promises like John 7, who he who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And you feed that faith. 
You feed that faith to be able to move with courage to do great exploits for those who are like Lot all around you. Now, I think Abram's a good example of this. Faith in God, fueling him in this way. But I want to give you two other examples. Go to Mark chapter 2. Two other examples like this. Mark chapter 2. One of these examples will be in your Bible. One of them will not be. Mark chapter 2 verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, somebody, Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was, no, there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came. Say, so who is they? Here's these unnamed men. They came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Here's four men. Carrying in a paralytic, trying to bring him to Jesus. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they gave up and went home. I'm glad you all looked up. They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening uh, in the roof, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Here's somebody going after great exploits to bring a man to Christ. The man needs Christ. He's in trouble. And he's going to bring him to Christ. And he's going through great exploits to make it happen. I can't get through at the door. What do I do? Tear the roof down and lower him there. And when Jesus saw that, what did Jesus see? Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son... Your sins are forgiven you. So where are my brothers and sisters in Christ that had that kind of faith that will tear roots down to bring people to Christ, to deliver a lot? If anything stands in the way, do anything to get them to Christ. That's one example. Another one is a man named John Knox. I'll tell you a couple of things about him real quick. John Knox was a follower of Christ who turned Scotland upside down in the 1500s. John Knox... And this man did great exploits to bring many people to Christ. He risked his neck to bring people to Christ, to deliver people just like Abram did towards Lot. This is John Knox. He was famous for praying something like this. He prayed, God, give me Scotland or I die. Give me Scotland or I die. Great exploits this man lived out. Now, what, what fueled his courage to do this at the risk of his own life? What fueled this man's courage? And I'm saying it's faith in his God. Two quotes tell me that. One's his own quote. He says this. One man with God is always in the majority. One man with God is always in the majority. Tells me his faith is in his God. Another quote comes from somebody else. Queen Mary said this about the faith-filled praying of John Knox. He said, she said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Where are the examples like John Knox that will go on great exploits with faith fueling their courage to deliver people like Abram did Lot? Let's go to that second one. Faith in God will lead you to not only do great exploits, but it will lead you to not do some stuff. Okay? Faith in God will lead you to not do some things that make sense from a worldly perspective. 
Totally makes sense from a worldly perspective. Now consider Abram's unthinkable rejection of the king of Sodom's offer. Think about it. Look at verse, look at Genesis 14, verse 21. Genesis 14, 21. Here's the offering. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Here you go, Abram. Take the spool. Abram, take the money. Take it, Abram. You, you earned it. You defeated, you, you just defeated an army that defeated 11 people. You, you deserve it. Take it, Abram. And from a worldly perspective, Abram would be an absolute fool. Not to take the spoils of war. Especially when the king himself says, here, you take it. This would, this would just totally make sense in the sight of the world. Now what motivated Abram not to take the spoil? What motivated him? And it's love. Not just We saw love for a lot a minute ago. Now it's love for the glory of God. Look at verse 23. He said that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, King of Sodom, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. He is, he is in love with God being exalted in his life. Not this man made him rich, but God prospered him as he promised to do. So what made it motivated him was the love of the glory of God. Now, what gave him the, the courage to reject this offer for God's glory? What gave him the courage to do that? And it's faith in God. This was the prosperity test. Here's your chance, Abram, to, to grasp at God's blessing in your own flesh rather than waiting upon God to do it himself. It reminds me of David and Saul. Remember, David had been promised by God that he would be the king of these people. But right now, Saul is king. And Saul tries to kill David over and over again. And twice, David had a, a, a perfect opportunity to kill Saul. And all his friends around him say, God has delivered Saul into your hand, David. And David decides not to do it. Why? He didn't want to take it into his own hands. He wants to trust, have faith in his God. To do it in his time and to do it in his way. So just, in, just as faith in God frees you to love others with great exploits, even so faith in God frees you to glorify God. Faith in God frees you to glorify God. Your, your prayer is something like this. God, I want to live a life for your glory. And God's answer to your prayer is to put you in situations where you must depend on him, where you must trust him. And what he's doing is he's stripping away every opportunity for man, for flesh to boast. He's stripping it all away so that only God gets the glory. Think about Judges chapter 6 and chapter 7 with Gideon. I've referred to it much since we've been talking about Abraham. Here's Gideon getting ready to go to war. You remember it? And God looks at him in Judges 7 too and he says, listen to me. The men who are with you are too many there are too many for me to deliver, this arm, deliver that army into your hands. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me saying, my own hand has saved me. Do you get that? Did he say, look, you got too many, Gideon. You got too many in your army. Them people are going to think they did it. So what I want to do is strip you down to just 300 men so that when you win the battle, all will know that this is a work that God has done. And we say, God, let us live lives to your glory. And God says, okay. And he puts you in situations where you've got to trust him. You've got to have faith in him. And you may even need to turn down some things that the world would think you're crazy for turning down. 
Now, what about us? How do we measure up to Abram and this idea? And here's a question I would ask. Do you have a framework in your life, in your mind, in your heart? You have a framework for something like this. Rejecting the spoils, not taking the money, not taking the job. Even though, humanly speaking, it's the very thing that makes sense to do. But do you have a place in your mind that there's a time to reject it for the glory of God with faith in Christ? Do you have a framework for stuff like that? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay, I'm obviously not saying that, that you get extra points on your super spiritual card every time you turn out something good. I don't mean that. But what I am saying is, is you need to draw your attention to this example of Abram. He is consumed with the glory of God. And then being consumed with the glory of God, although this offer makes sense in, in the eyes of the world, he rejects it. Do you have a place for that? You think about in Ezra chapter 8. That's, let me read this to you. Go to Ezra chapter 8. Do you have a place for this in your life? Ezra chapter 8. Verse 21. Then I proclaim a fast there at the river Ahava. That we might humble ourselves before our God and seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves our children, all our goods. For I was ashamed. Okay, so we're seeking God for a safe journey. They're about to go on a four-month journey back to Jerusalem, and it's dangerous. And they begin to seek God and fast and pray. And verse 22 says, For I was ashamed, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is, on the, is for good on all those who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all those who forsake him. Do you have a place in your mind for that? That he says, you know what? We've got access to ask the king to protect us and help us right here. But I'm not going to ask the king. You know why? I'm ashamed to ask the king because we told that king that our God would deliver us. Or what about quickly, Second Chronicles 16. King Asa's life with, with Judah. King Asa, he was a king of Judah. And if you read uh, 2 Chronicles 14, you see Judah comes up against a million man army, a, an army double the size he has. And, he, and they're about to fight him. They're about to destroy him. And he cries out to the living God. Oh God, we rest on you. And in your name we go against this great multitude that's standing against us. Deliver us, oh God. Let not man prevail against you, God. We see him crying out to God in 2 Chronicles 14. And God delivers him from the million man army. Then fast forward several years. And you get to 2 Chronicles 16. And another army comes up against King Asa. And when this army comes up against him, rather than calling out to God and asking him to help, he turns to the king of Syria. He says, King of Syria, here, I'm going to give you some silver and gold. Will you help me with this? And sure enough, the king of Syria helps him and the plan works. Both plans worked. He cried out to God and he was delivered. He cried out to the king of Syria and he was delivered. But look at chapter 16, verse 7. At that time, Hananiah, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria... Is there a framework for, for that in your life? That there's a way you can rely upon, not God, but the king of Syria. And you did not rely on the Lord God. The army of the king of Syria has escaped you. 
And look, God reminds them of what happened in the past. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, He gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless. And so what I'm asking is, do you have this framework of faith in God sometimes means rejecting things that make sense in the light of the world, makes sense to go to the king of Syria to get help. Makes sense to take the spoils from the army right here. But I want to trust in my God and bring Him glory above all else. And I want us as a church to grow in that. I want us as a, in a, church, as a church to be asking God, God, are there areas in my life where Jeremiah 17 is at play? Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. God, please lead us towards blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. I want to encourage you this week to ask God to reveal areas like that in your life where your trust is in man or in yourself and not in God. And I want to encourage you as a church to make great exploits in faith for God. All right, let's go to mysterious Melchizedek. Now, this is one of the most mysterious men in the entire Bible. Melchizedek. And let's just start with what we know about him from Genesis 14, verse 18 through 20. Okay, so that we get three verses about him right here. Verses 18 through 20. Let's just start with what we know. Okay, what do we know? Who is this man? Who is Melchizedek? We know he's a king. Verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem. Pretty easy to understand. He's a real king. A king of Salem at this time. He brings out bread and wine like a royal feast to the, the victors, Abram and his allies. He brings out this royal feast to them. Melchizedek is a king. Also, we know he's a king of Jerusalem. We know from verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem. We know from Jewish history and also from Psalm 76 too, that Salem is another word talking about Jerusalem. So that's interesting, right? To say the least. Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem. Before Jerusalem is Jerusalem. We also know that he's a priest of God Most High. He's a priest of God Most High. It says it right here. He was priest of God Most High in verse 18. Now this is a very unusual thing. This man is king and this man is priest. All throughout God's word, those offices are separated and they're kept separated. When a king, Uzziah, tried to take on the role of priest, God struck him with leprosy. So this, this man is king and priest. And this is the first time we see the word priest in our Bible. When you think of priest, I want you to think about a priest as like a mediator between God and man. You got God and you got mankind. And a priest is like this mediator here. Don't, don't flip there, but let me read you this verse. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, it gives us a little bit of a definition. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. Listen, a priest is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So they're to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So think about Melchizedek. This first time we hear about a priest like a mediator between God and man. You see this in the blessing that he gives. He gives a blessing. He says, blessed be Abram. And he says, blessed be God. He stands between God and men as a mediator. What else do we know about this man? He's, he's highly respected, highly honored by Abram. Notice Abram ties to this man. He gives him a tenth of all the spoils. 
This shows that he, that he acknowledges this man, that he's a true priest of the Most High God. And not only that, but, but Abram is influenced by this man. Melchizedek calls God the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And if you read Abram's following words, he looks at the king of Sodom and he says, I've lifted my hand to the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. He's got great influence on Abram. Which brings us to this point about this man. This man knows God. He knows the one true God. Melchizedek says some things about God that show his true knowledge of God. First time we've heard these titles of God in our Bibles. In chapter 14, verse, verse, uh, verse uh, 19, he says, blessed be, blessed be Abram by God most high. So Melchizedek, what does he see about God? He is God most high. Is that the way you view God? God most high. He's the most high. He is the highest of authorities. Nine kings are mentioned in this passage of scripture. But Christ is the highest of them all. He is the king of all kings. The highest authority in the land is infinitely less than the most high authority. That's the reason why Peter looked at the, the authorities in his day. And he said we must obey God rather than man. It's the reason Jesus looked at these people and He said, Don't fear men who can only kill the body. Fear God who can kill your body and cast your soul into hell. He's the Most High. Nebuchadnezzar was the highest authority in the land in Daniel's day. And this is what he said about God. Which is similar to Melchizedek. Daniel chapter 4, he says this. 4 verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. See, God humbled this mighty king and I blessed the most high. That's what he calls God, the most high. And I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to all His will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand. None can say to Him, What have you done? This is the Most High God that Melchizedek believes in. Second thing He says about God, He calls Him, look at verse 19, the possessor of heaven and earth. The possessor of heaven and earth. Is this how you know God? He is the possessor of heaven and earth. It means He possesses all things. It all belongs to Him. What do you possess? Very little, right? And yet God owns it all. Even the things that are yours are actually His. Your money, your job, your cars, your house belongs to Him. Your children, your family, His. Your time, your future, it all belongs to Him. Listen to Psalm. 50, I'm going to start in verse 10. You don't have to flip there. Psalm 50, verse 10. Listen to how it says it. I want you to hear God Himself speak about this. Every beast of the forest is mine, He says. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. He said it belongs to Him. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. If I were hungry, God says, if I were hungry, would I tell you? For the world and all its fullness are mine. They're mine, he says. And Melchizedek knows this about God. He knows the true God. He's the most high possessor of heaven and earth. And he knows that he's sovereign. He says, Abram, that battle you just won, 
God delivered your enemies into your hands. That's a work that God has done. One more thing about Melchizedek here from Genesis 14. I believe Melchizedek is the initial fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, there's a promise given to Abram. I will bless those who bless you. Which is exactly what Melchizedek goes. He blesses Abram. And it goes on to give an all nation scope. And in your seed, Abram, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This means not just the people of Abel's people group, but people from all nations coming under the glory of Jesus Christ. It's going to happen, and Melchizedek fits right in line with this. Melchizedek is our first example of a non-Jew, a one who's not a Hebrew, one that comes from this Canaanite region that trusts in the living God. He fits along that line of Rahab in Jericho or, or Ruth the Moabitess. Or you could keep going, Naaman. Who, who, uh, who was the, the leper that came to Israel. The, and all these people that remind us that this, that this promise to Abram was not just about one nation. It's never been that way. The Messiah that's promised to come through the seed of Abraham. It's never been about one nation. It's always been, been about all nations. And Melchizedek is like a signpost to us to say all nations, all nations for the glory of God. Now with all that being said. There's still a lot of mystery there, right? There's still a lot of mystery with this man. Where does this guy come from? Why does he appear so suddenly? Why is he so prominent yet he just disappears? He's off the map. There's a lot of mystery with this man. So what I want us to do is I want us to just remember that there's a couple other places in God's word where, where Melchizedek is spoken of. About 900 years later, David speaks about him in Psalm 110. And he speaks about Melchizedek in relation to the Messiah that's coming as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And about a thousand years after that, the writer to the Hebrews, he writes this letter in chapters 5 through 7. We get details about this Melchizedek. And what we see in those places of God's word is that Melchizedek is a foreshadowing to look forward to the Christ who's coming. In other words, these men took the mysteries of Melchizedek. And they said, here's one thing you're supposed to do with this. You're supposed to see Christ and understand things about Jesus as you gaze at Genesis 14 and you see Melchizedek. So let's mention just a few things that we can learn about Jesus from looking at Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Now, before we do this, I'm just going to say three things about Melchizedek very quickly. But before we do this, hear me out. Because I want us to exult in Jesus for just a moment. I want us to remember Christ Jesus, our Savior, through the lens of Melchizedek. But here's what happened in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 5, he begins to unfold this high priest whose name is Jesus Christ. This high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But then he pauses and he said, look, I got a lot to say about this. Christ Jesus in the order, high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I got a lot to say about this, Hebrews 5.10. I got a lot to say, but you become dull of hearing. You can't take it. It's like background noise to you. And so my encouragement or my, my warning rather is to not let that be the case with us. Because what he does in Hebrews is he warns them about letting Jesus be background noise. And then, and then a little bit later, he begins to unfold Christ Jesus, high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So as we do this right now, we think about Jesus through the lens of Melchizedek. Do not let it be background noise to you. First thing we see from Genesis 14, Melchizedek. 
Jesus is the king of righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. We see that in Genesis 14, 18, where he is named Melchizedek. And that word, that word Melchizedek, it literally means king of righteousness. Now, if you think, man, he's just digging too hard there. Go to Hebrews 7, verse 1 and 2. And they say that, not me. I learned it from them. Okay? So he is a king of righteousness. Jesus is king of righteousness. So here's what we know about Christ. He's king. He's king. We've learned about it from Genesis chapter 1. That we know that he's the one, the glory of God is going to fill the earth through Jesus Christ. Genesis 3, he's the one that's going to crush the serpent's head. Genesis 12, he's the one that's going to bless all nations. We know all these things about him. Here's what we know right here. He is king, king of glory, king of kings, king of all. Right here it says king of righteousness. That means he's king of perfection. That means he is always right. He is never wrong. There's no unrighteousness in him whatsoever. Satan tried to tempt him in the wilderness, bring unrighteousness into his life, and Satan failed miserably. Christ is the king of righteousness. He governs the whole universe righteously so we can trust him. He governs every detail of your life and everything that he does and everything he allows you to go through is right because he's the king of righteousness. His commands are righteous. No amendments ever have to be made to his legislation. Isaiah 11 puts him forward and says that righteousness is the belt that everything else is tucked into. He's the king of righteousness. His judgments, his judgments even are righteous. Which, by the way, is the reason that people like us even need saving. Why do we need saving? Because our God is always right and we're wrong. Why do we need saving? Because he's a righteous judge that won't let the guilty go free. And we come before him on judgment day as wretched sinners that deserve his wrath. And he always does what's right. Therefore, we need saving from the king of righteousness. What else is he? Number two, Jesus is the king of peace. We see that also in Genesis 14, 18. He's called the king of Salem. And that word Salem means peace. Again, I'm not digging too deep. Hebrews 7.2 told me that. He's king of Salem, which is translated king of peace. So he's the king of peace. Jesus is the king of tranquility. You need peace in your life? You need that? There's many places you can go to get it, but it's just like slapping a band-aid on a, on a major mortal wound. The only place it can be found is with the king of peace. In fact, the real reason that humans lack peace is because they don't have peace with God. In Romans 5, 10, you know, what the, you know what God's word says about us? It says, and since we were enemies with God. You see, we're enemies with God. That's the opposite of peace. Enemies against the infinite God that can destroy your soul in hell forever. That's how we all begin. But praise God, Romans 5, 1. It says that we can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That He came to die for sinners. He came to take the punishment we deserve so that we could have peace with God and no longer be His enemies. He's the King of peace. Now we know that, we know that not all people experience His peace. Not, not everybody experiences Him as the King of peace. In fact, if you read over in Romans 16, 20, it says this about God. I always thought this was interesting. The God of peace who will crush Satan under your feet. And do they seem to go together to you? You think he's going to say the God of peace is going to make everybody happy. But he says the God of peace 
But some don't experience Him as the God of peace who will crush Satan under your feet shortly. So here's the reality. Not everybody experiences Him that way. But it's those that are citizens in His kingdom view Him as the King of tranquility, the King of peace, who has rescued us from being His enemies. Third thing, third and last thing we see about Jesus through the lens of Melchizedek. Jesus is the priest, the priest of God Most High. And this is really the focus. I mean, this is what, what it says in verse 18. He's priest of God Most High. And that's really the focus of Psalm 110, where it mentions Melchizedek. That's the focus of Hebrews 5 through 7, where it mentions Melchizedek. So Jesus is priest of God Most High. I want to make sure we understand this. Do you understand that if Jesus only came, if we only knew him as king, and that's it, and not priest, that would not be good news for us. Jesus as king, without Jesus as mediator, is terrible news. Because we have rebelled against the king of glory, and we'll experience his wrath forever if he does not come and mediate for us. But here we have him put forward as priest of God most high. Priest of, as, of God Most High. And he's perfect. He's perfect to be this priest. This mediator as I spoke earlier. Because Jesus is fully God. And he's fully man. Jesus comes to the earth on the rescue mission to save. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15. And he's fully God. And he's fully man. So he could perfectly be the mediating priest for us. He's priest of God Most High. And every priest has got to have a sacrifice. To offer for the people so that he can obtain atonement for them for their sins. Does Jesus, does Jesus the priest have something to offer for us? Does he have a sacrifice to offer for us? Turn with me to Hebrews 9. In Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verse 24. He's talking about Christ as that great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. For Christ has not entered, excuse me, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, not that earthly tabernacle that the other priests went into, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You imagine Jesus entering into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf as our great high priest. Look down at verse 26, about halfway through it. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Yes, Jesus, the high priest, has a sacrifice to offer. And what is it? He offers up himself. He lays himself on the altar. And the wrath of God that's supposed to fall on us, it falls on the Lamb of God who was slain in our place. Praise the God that he had a sacrifice to offer. Now, one more thing I'll mention here. Melchizedek in Genesis 14 just came out of nowhere, right? I mean, he literally just... He just came out of nowhere. He's got no beginning of days. We don't see anything about the end of his life. Nothing's recorded here. And I believe this is to remind us that that's like Christ. That has no beginning of days. And he has no end of life. He is the eternal high priest. He's priest forever. Now again, I didn't come up with that. Hebrews 7. Let me read to you verse 3. 
He, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. He continues a priest forever. Let me read just a couple more verses to you along that line, and we'll close with exulting in Christ for what He's done here. Look at verse 15. Hebrews 7, 15. He's a high priest forever. As, Mo, as the lens of Melchizedek shows us. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. Here's Jesus. God for our sins. Risen to walk Forever risen from the dead, alive right now. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what we're doing right here, right now. He is alive with an indestructible life. What a glorious high priest he is. Keep going. Look at verse 23. The former priest were many in number. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. You see all those other priests... We're just merely human. And they died and they stayed dead. And they can no longer be your priest. My priest is gone. My priest has died. I need another priest. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently, which is what Melchizedek points us to. He holds his priesthood permanently because he, Jesus, continues forever. And what does that mean for us? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. How do you know your salvation is secure? How do you know you'll be saved to the uttermost? How can you have assurance of salvation? Why? Because you know that when you repented and put your faith in Him, Christ became your great high priest and He ain't going nowhere. He's risen alive and He intercedes for you according to this verse forever. He continues forever. And I'll end with these verses, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all. When he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath. Which came later than the law. Appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And therefore we can trust him as our great high priest. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for this perfect record of history, God, and the way that you've dealt with man. Thank you for letting us see your glory. God, you are the most high God. You are the possessor of heaven and earth. You own all things, Lord, and you own us. And we worship you, Lord. God, thank you for this example of faith in Abram. And I pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us here to live it out for the glory of your name. Help us to walk out lives of faith. God, help us to do what your word says. These people who know you, God, they will do great exploits. God, help us to do great exploits for the glory of your name. 
Fill us with a love for others. Fill us with a love for the glory of your name. And teach us, teach us what it is to live that out by faith. Thank you, Lord, for Melchizedek. Thank you, Lord, for letting us see through this lens that you, Lord, not only are you going to crush Satan's head, not only are you going to bless all nations, but, Lord, you are king of righteousness. You are king of peace. And you are priest of the Most High. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you, God, that we can rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.